Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, I'm Alva, and you're listening to the New Statesman Podcast. On today's episode... I'm joined by Christian Wakeford. That was the moment that Christian Wakeford, the former Conservative MP for Bury South, defected to the Labour Party at the height of the Partygate scandal. He joins me to talk about what it really felt like to cross the floor, losing friends over the defection, and whether he thinks he is now Christian Wakeford. You're very, very welcome on the New Statesman podcast. It's been quite an eventful few weeks for you. Yeah, I I think that's a a slight understatement, I think, really. Can I just begin by asking you then, that moment, right before Prime Minister's questions, it's crunch time for Boris Johnson, and it takes everyone by surprise. We all see on our phones, about 10 minutes before Prime Minister's questions begins, Christian Wakeford, the MP for Bury South, has defected to the Labour Party. And you walk into the chamber, you cross the floor and go and take your seat on the mm. Labour benches. And then Keir Starmer welcomes you and draws attention to your defection. How did that feel for you? If, if I'm honest, I think the biggest achievement I had that day was not throwing up on the back of <laughs> Keir Starmer's head. It was, wow, um, trying to see friends and not see friends and trying not to make eye contact with anyone and, and just get through for a morning that was already a blur. Yeah, I, I think as, as much as I hate cliches, but just for keep calm, carry on, we, we can get out and then I can try and talk to people essentially. At that moment, if there's ever a political rabbit in a headlight, I, I think that's how I felt it last that time. And did it feel right? Uh, or did it feel, I don't think anyone would blame you if you said it felt slightly wrong to be sitting with your erstwhile political enemy and facing these people who'd been your colleagues a few hours before? It's not that it felt wrong. I'd been working towards this decision and it was more a matter of, you know, when, not if. I I think it was probably a a bit quicker, but at that time it it was just, okay, this has actually happened. And it was all just incredibly new. The fact that I knew I, I was front and centre, not only of PMQs, but probably the national news, certainly for, for a couple of days. It was just, yeah, it was really weird. And having former friends and colleagues shouting uh, you know, what, what was abuse 
um, across the chamber at the time, that was tough. Mm. Uh, but I don't regret the decision. I, I regret the impact it's had on a few people. But hopefully as, as time goes on, that will fade. But I, I think I made the right decision then and I still think that now. The impact that it's had on other people, what exactly do you mean? Sorry, the hurt towards form, former friends. I mean, honestly, it's, it's not a conversation that you can really keep them updated with throughout because not only are they friends, they're, they're colleagues and they would probably also have a duty to, to tell people. But essentially keeping everyone in the dark, there, there were sense of anger and shock and disappointment and, you know, and, and a lot of hurt. And you know, I guess there's no good time to do this. And there is a, a lot of hurt out there. And I think if, if there's one thing I could change, it, it would be that feeling. Have you um, had conversations with your former Conservative colleagues since then? And have you tried to explain? And also, I suppose, have any of them indicated that they feel similarly? I've spoken to, to, to a few, especially the ones I was... Um, close with by all means not all the ones I want to speak to like I said I'm I'm aware there was anger trying to reach out that may take time but for some uh, yeah I think the message I would say to those I've spoken to all those that I I still have to speak to is I'm I'm not asking you to agree what I am hoping is that you understand that this hasn't come easily It, it has taken a while and to it's taken a lot of soul searching, uh, if anything. And you know, I think at the start of this process, I, I probably had a lot more hair. Uh, for, for one, I, I certainly had a lot more sleep. I've done this decision because I, I think it's the best thing, certainly for people at Berry South, certainly for me. I, I genuinely think it's the right decision. I just I hope they can understand that. So we'll definitely come back to, to the defection, but I'd like to chart that entire journey, if I may. So can we wind the hands of time back a little bit and go into how you got into politics? Because you've been a Conservative member and, and an elected Conservative representative for quite a while, actually. Yeah. So how did you get into Conservative politics? How did you know you were a Tory? So I actually told this story in a podcast uh, for a local Jewish care home. And I went back to my old college for their, what was it, book day and career day, because I started my route to politics at college. I studied it for A level. And they asked me the question, why did you choose politics? And honestly, I had no interest in politics at the time. I just had a, a friend who was in the same class and thought, thought it would be great to have someone to go to the pub at lunchtime with. It just, it turned out that I was you know, enjoying studying the politics. And from from that moment, you know, I, I identified, I, I guess, the, the ideology as to how I was brought up, which kind of resonated with me. So I, I guess it was more my, my past was, was conservative. So I joined the party in 2003. So 19 years, pretty much my entire adult life until last week was as a conservative member. Mm. And you know, I've I've been elected. I've held senior positions across the northwest, and then was elected as a member of parliament. And I, I think, from some of the things I've been campaigning on, some of the things I'm passionate about, I was seeing a government that wasn't actually doing anything really to address those. If anything, they, they were making it worse. So I, I think that's when I started questioning myself. And you know, compromise isn't a dirty word, but I think I I made too many compromises. Yeah, so when did that start? Because I've been looking through the the Christian Wakeford back catalogue and as you would expect from a Conservative MP, you've made some 
quite forthright attacks on Labour, calling the party out of touch, yeah. talking about its record on various things. And obviously you voted with the Conservative whip on pretty much everything, the way you would expect of a Conservative MP. When you were talking about Labour being out of touch in the Red Wall, not being the party with a serious plan to get things done, at what point were you internally wavering on that? I think some of those comments were made certainly about and during the previous leadership. I think really the, the pandemic changed a lot of things for a lot of people, whether it was the sacrifices we saw, the, the best and unfortunately the worst of, of Britain, where actually everyone clubbed together and, and tried to play their extra parts for not only their friends and neighbours, but actually the wider community. You know, why have we not had that before? I mean, it was almost David Cameron's big society. It just took a global uh, pandemic to, to get there. I, I think when we got to the vote on free school meals, the, the first one, that's when I started questioning things. At the end of the day, it, it's never a child's fault. And all of a sudden, we're, we were saying we fun, funded it all up to this point, but no further. Well, what about these children who actually are going to starve, are going to have dif- difficulties. And you know, that was something I really wasn't comfortable with. To then have a um, concerns, not massive concerns, about the Dominic Cummings uh, fiasco. And yeah, I think at that point, it, it wasn't just the leadership. When you were having ministers being wheeled out to, to support a decision that was you know, essentially against the law, that was, it was unedifying then and it's unedifying, unedifying now over party gate. We then had well, the genocide amendment to the trade bill and the fact, why would we want to trade with a country that's committing genocide? We've had the care cap cost, the cost of living crisis, universal credits. Now, it's been a slow journey, but it's it's been one that ultimately came to this realisation. I mean, the thought that it's only about party gate I mean, Partygate's contributed to it, but there's been quite a few concerns for, well, past 18 months or so. Would you describe yourself as a socialist now? I'd describe myself as a centrist who who wants to do everything they can do to support those who are in need, for those who can't help themselves, and for for those who actually do need help. And that's not just in the UK, that's 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 across the globe. 0.7 is something I, I, I was passionate about and I think we, we need to invest in other countries because that's what global Britain should be about. We were world leaders previously in diplomacy and, and soft power and it seems that it was a very easy decision to make to appease parts of the Conservative Party to say actually we won't keep to 0.7 there are many who'd like it to be zero but no it's wrong. So I suppose some people listening to this would think, fair enough, Christian Wakeford clearly doesn't share the values of Boris Johnson's Conservative Party. He wasn't happy with the free school meals vote, wasn't ha- hasn't been happy with Partygate, the Owen Patterson scandal, hasn't been happy with, as you mentioned, the cut to the aid target, various policing amendments and so on. But some of the rest of what you said would suggest that maybe you would still be you would still have a happy home in the Conservative Party under a different leader. It doesn't sound like you would have been, un- if, if David Cameron were leader again tomorrow, you would be uncomfortable there. Is that fair? No, because I, I don't think it's just for leadership. I, I, I think it's what we've seen is a, a culture, and, and that's come from the leadership, but it's gone from the, the top through the party. I mean, the fact the party's not talking about 
cost of living crisis. I mean, they're not doing anything, not even talking about it. They weren't really, you know, bothered uh, by the sound of it about uh, the universal credit cuts. You know, it, that was seen very much as a, a financial decision to save six billion pounds a year. It was wrong uh, policy then; it's the wrong policy now. They've not cared about quite a few issues that, that for me, are important. And yeah, I, I think of the mental health pandemic, which is going to be much more costly and, and much more serious. Um, the cope of that widens to drug and alcohol uh, rehabilitation and, and addiction services, and, and they're barely even, you know, scratching the surface for that. And as someone who lost their own brother to alcohol addiction, this is something I'm incredibly passionate about, and it, it just doesn't even seem to be getting a mention. Because the yeah, because the government is absolutely paralysed at the moment. Um, oh, well, I've, I've been asking for the details of an alcohol strategy for two years. We've not had anything. I'm sorry to hear about your brother. I didn't realise that. In terms of, so these are sort of the issues that you'd like to see a sort of serious party getting on with. And that seems to be part of why you're not a Labour P. There was the health and care bill. The one amendment, I, I was the only Conservative who, who rebelled on it at the time. And when you're the only one, it really does make you think, am I in the right place? Yeah, so it's a question it seems to me of seriousness of which party will be serious about changing people's lives and getting things done. Is that fair? Yeah, to say the concept of levelling up has been central to the government for nearly two years and we still don't know what levelling up means. We're, we're having to wait till next week. So February of 2022, they've, the government's been in power since December 2019 and we're potentially then only finding out what levelling up means. We've got communities crying out for assistance. We've, for me, it's education. It's put, putting more resource into skills and training and tackling literacy rates when we've got 9 million people in the country who either can't or struggle reading. That's what we need to be talking about. But again, we're nowhere near the table. So we talked a little bit about how this has been difficult for you with your friends and colleagues or former colleagues in the Conservative Party. But I can't imagine you've had a necessarily easy welcome in Labour either. Certainly you, you seem to have a warm reception on the benches when you moved over but younger members and, and those on the left of the party have been pretty forthright that they aren't happy that a former Conservative MP with the voting record that you have abstaining for example on the cut to universal credit is now a, a Labour MP and one thing so the chair of Young Labour Jess Barnard wrote a piece I don't know if you saw no, it I've read the piece in the Metro yeah so she she has said, I was angry that this man who campaigned against our party and our activists and denied local people a Labour voice year after year could change his party when it looks to suit his personal ambitions. And then Boris Johnson in the chamber after Keir Starmer announced your defection. Boris Johnson said he Barry South was one under this Prime Minister, under this Conservative Prime Minister, and it will be Conservative again. So he thinks that you are less likely to be re-elected in Bury South now that you've moved parties. Do you think you're more likely to be re-elected as a Labour MP there? I've not been thinking about the general election or, or anything. For the last couple of weeks, it's been kind of crossing the floor and just getting on with the work uh, that I've been doing previously. I, I think, like you said before, when it comes down to a voting record, yes, I was a Conservative. I, I've followed a Conservative whip, not all the time, but on, on the vast majority of issues. 
I, I think really now it's draw a line in the sand and, and judge me from what I do from this point forward. I've only had two votes so far, but I think it's a, a lot easier to do it when you're not being threatened, strong-armed or given a promise that actually this bill isn't the uh, right place for this amendment. It, you know, when we got this future bill, that's the right place. And then the future bill comes forward and there's, there's nothing to actually address an issue. And there's only so much you can actually believe when you're you're still a newcomer. So I, I think it, it was all this eroding of trust that slowly builds up and you know I can go back and change some of the votes I've made now but hopefully I can make amends for them moving forward when I'm, I'm following a Labour whip mm-hmm. uh, yeah, whilst I don't expect the those on the left to fully agree to a former Conservative at some point to win an election the Labour Party does need to attract those people who have voted Conservative for those who have voted leave at some point, it might not be something uh, everyone is comfortable with, but that's the only way that that Labour is a- able to win an election. Hopefully, this defection actually sends a strong message that if someone who is actually a Conservative MP can make that change, then actually someone who just voted that way can much, much more easily make that change. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So give us the insight then of of former Conservative Redwall MPE because we mythologise that cohort in the media a bit that Redwall voters are the sort of the coveted voters for Labour to win back. Boris Johnson is so proud of having won them, giving him that huge majority in 2019, actually as one of those Redwallers. What are your insights into where Labour has been going wrong on that and how it actually wins those people back in in your seat? I, I, I think, as I've said to, to a few, I think it comes down to the pub test. And if you're in a pub on the Friday night, what are you actually talking about? At the time in, in 2019, I'm not sure it was necessarily Boris who was winning people over, but more of the former leadership pushing people away. Between that and actually just this the description of being bored of Brexit, I think the entire nation can agree that they were bored of Brexit after three years. The notion that it will just be done and we don't have to talk about it anymore, that actually resonated with, with a lot of people. For the Red War, which predominantly did vote for leave, I think they wanted to think that they could, you know, trust the government to actually, you know, deliver Brexit. And, you know, we, we look at where Brexit's been delivered and, you know, I, I say this as someone who voted for leave. We've now got issues over customs that, you know, 
no one voted for and that's become a, a glaring mess. We've got issues over the Northern Ireland Protocol that no one voted for and that's a glaring mess. We're getting tariffs left, right and centre and it's not what people voted. You know, and you know, Keir has uh, come out and made you know several statements that actually it's not a case of a, a campaign to, to rejoin now, it's just a campaign to make the best of the situation we're in and at the moment I don't think the government's serious about it. I, I think we got to the 31st of uh, December on, on 2020 and it was we've achieved everything now, game over and we'll crack on with something else and we're, we're all still dealing with, with a lot of this mess over a year later now. I think there was a lot of that but I, I think really the, the one issue that really resonated with me was fairness. They wanted to feel like they were being listened to. They wanted to feel like they were commu- their communities were being cared for and, and actually talked about. And you know, whilst we've got a lot more regional accents on, on the conservative benches now, we've not actually had a massive amount of delivery. We've had some some government departments move in, into other areas of the UK. You know, that's that's not levelling up. We've seen the changes to HS2 with uh, with Northern Powerhouse Rail. That's not levelling up. We've got a entire kind of swathes of the north screaming out for investment, and we still don't have a levelling up white paper. With it's, I think they've been taken for granted. Yeah, and you're you're completely unique now, having been a, a Conservative Red Wall MP and, and now a Labour one. Do you think that sort of malaise about the Conservatives not really delivering on that? agenda is shared by colleagues in those seats? I know quite a few concerns when we got to the budget as to why some areas were getting funding, others weren't. And I, I don't just mean the, the now described blue wall against red wall. You know, I think there were areas across the north who were saying, how are you getting this and, and I'm not? And it almost seemed as if there, there was an argument every time some something was coming forward. But levelling up is a lot more than just a, a shiny new building. And I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I've got two shiny new buildings. Um, but it, it's about that kind of social infrastructure to actually make sure that you are safe in your communities. What we've seen is that, that women and you know and girls that, you know, aren't safe to walk the streets at night. Mm. It's about being able to, to leave school with a good qualification and get into a good job. And again, that's not the case for large areas of the country. And it's about the, the security of knowing that you can go one day to, to the next without having to worry about whether you can pay your bills. And again, we've got, a, you know, we're going into arguably the biggest cost of living crisis that I can remember. And the government's not delivered for, for any of those three things. And I think really, it's really beginning to show. Some former Conservative colleagues of yours have um, described you as Christian Wokeford. And... Um, I don't know if you've seen that. I'm aware of Lee Anderson and Jonathan Gullis. What do you make of that? Does that does that offend you, annoy you? Is it a fair label? Do you see yourself as woke? I, I, I think if they're saying that I'm, you know, that I'm compassionate, then you know, I'll, I'll wear it as a label. I do care about you know, that those who, who can't help themselves. I do care about foreign communities who actually really need international aid. You know, I, I do care about what's going on. You know, with the Uyghur or, or even in Ukraine, because I was there earlier this week. And again, the government's not got any of this right. So if, if they want to call me Wokeford because these are some things I, I care about, 
let them do it. So I suppose that's, I wasn't sure if you would laugh at that. And for listeners who can't see your expression, you, you very much didn't. I think you looked a bit hurt that your former colleagues talk about you that way. Uh, no, they called me that before I, before I mm. crossed the floor. So it's, uh, that was not a new one to me. Mm. Um, it is what it is. If that's the most original thing they can come up with, I'm surprised they're not putting that in the white paper next week as well. So that's not the, not even really the sharp end of your experience with the Conservative Party in recent months, because you have also quite bravely gone on the record to say uh, that you received threats from Gavin Williamson over funding for a school in your area to really back up William Bragg's allegations of blackmail by some Conservative whips and ministers. I I gather you were maybe thinking of speaking to the police about that. I'm just wondering how how big a problem you think that is within the party, the experience of colleagues with that, especially while we're still very much in the eye of a storm on Partygate. Yeah, I mean, I'm... I'm aware f- throughout the last year when colleagues have, we, we've all been chatting over either a particular amendment or a particular bill and they've said, well, I've been told that if I don't do this, I, I won't get level up funding money or I, I won't get anything through the restoration, uh, the railway restoration fund. And it builds not that level of, of fear, but for, do I want to hold back it in my entire area for a vote? And, you know, especially when you're new and you've not really been able to build a relationship with a whip because for the vast majority of the last two years, most people haven't been in Parliament in person. It's all been via Zoom and WhatsApp. I've been aware of whips actually jabbing former colleagues in the chest and saying, you're done. So I I think, again, it's this culture that's bred from the top as to what is and isn't acceptable. Yes, I know it's their job to get government business through, but you don't do it by threatening people. Now, if you can't win the argument by the strength of your argument, then it's it's a pretty weak argument. Boris um, Johnson, at the point where you defected, was in a pretty vulnerable place. But strangely, it's a, a few commentators and, and other Conservatives have suggested that actually your defection and seeing Keir Starmer and the Labour Party benefit from this crisis actually made them rally round him. And they certainly were louder in that, PMQs than they had been the previous week. Do you think that you've, in a way, temporarily saved Boris Johnson? I, I, I think, like my my move to the Labour Party, when it was clear it was when, not if, Boris Johnson's in that position. People aren't talking about his legacy, they're talking about who's replacing him. Whilst 54 letters weren't met last week, it's only a week ago, I, I still think that's imminent. I think my fear, certainly before, was even if they did all go in, I think he'd survive. I still think there's a lot of loyalty on the government benches and, and certainly from his 29 intake of that feeling of he got me elected. So I, I'm not saying it wouldn't be close, but I, I think he would survive. I'm aware of a, a few former colleagues as well who said actually people are, are rallying behind him at the moment. Yeah, that, that may have changed slightly when the he's now under police investigation with with more allegations coming out and the much fabled suit Gray report. He's, he's running out of road and he's running out of his brass neck to hide behind. It really is a matter of when. And having been a Conservative MP, what would your sense be of who would be most likely to replace him when he goes? I, I think this is part of the problem. That there's no obvious contender. I mean, people talk about about the Chancellor and yeah, he, he was popular at the height of pandemic when you know 
you're, you're handing out lots of money and it's been a lifestyle. But when you're the first conservative chancellor you know, in generations to, to put up tax, you know, that wasn't popular. You know, there's been a lot of decisions coming forward that haven't been popular. You look at, the, at Liz Truss and it feels painting your face blue and shouting freedom is the way to become popular and it works with the grassroots. But I, I just, I don't see leadership there. So I, I guess when you go away from those big two, then where are you looking? If it's Nadine Dorries, then I'm emigrating myself. But I, I just, <laughs> I can't see where, where, where we find someone credible who's not tarnished and, and actually can deliver for a lot of what people need. Just a couple of final questions, um, Christian. I'm aware that we haven't touched um, yet on on sort of the issue of anti-Semitism, which I know you care greatly about, representing Bury South, which has the largest Jewish population of any constituency outside of London. And I think I'm right in saying that you're chair of the all-party parliamentary group for the British Jewish community. So... That must have added an extra element to your decision to move to the Labour Party. And certainly you've been asked a few tough questions about um, a potential new colleague on those benches in Jeremy Corbyn. Um, So if Jeremy Corbyn did apologise for his response to the EHRC report, would you be comfortable sitting alongside him? on those benches and being a colleague of his? At the moment, I've, I think it's quite clear that I've, well, since, if I remember, I think it was October 2020 when the EHRC report came out, he, he was told then what he needed to do. So after, what, 15, 16 months, there hasn't been an apology, which to me says there isn't going to be one. So I, I think at the moment it's, uh, it's very much a, a hypothetical problem. But I, I think... You know, there has to be, you know, that has to be the precursor for everything and it needs to be sincere and well-received from, from the Jewish community before before anything else. Just like I was saying, ju- just this week, I I joined a European Jewish Association delegation to, to Babinyar in, in Kiev ahead of Hol- Holocaust Memorial Day. And I, I think we we all need to, to actually take stock and realise the, the hurts, the concern, the anguish that a lot of this has caused over the last few years. And, and that's not going to disappear quickly. But I know the, the JLM is in a much stronger place now from where they were pre Kier and becoming the leader, where I think 4% of members thought the party was a safe space to where we are now, where it's... 77 uh, percent and you know that's a drastic change in such a short time so it is part of a journey i i would hope that my 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 own reputation within the jewish uh, community will actually help with that journey my politics towards the community won't be changing i still think they've been the most ostracized uh, community in the country certainly in, in recent years so i'm more than happy to keep on uh, getting involved with all communal organisations, whether national or, or local, to make sure that their voices are being heard and that they're, they're being heard loudly. A couple of final questions. So there was a YouGov poll after your defection, which found that 62% of people think that when an MP switches party, they should resign their seat and call a by-election. Why as far as I can tell, are you not planning on doing that? I think at the moment, the one thing m- most people would hope for is a 650-seat by-election. If we're about to change uh, you know, the leader of the Conservatives and ultimately the Prime Minister, I think it's the time we need need a, a general election. At the moment, my main focus is, is on delivering for the people of Bury South. 
Although I suppose, as you said, it looks quite likely that Boris Johnson will will hang on if there isn't an obvious successor. Do you really think that people voted for you rather than for Boris Johnson and the Conservatives and so on? Do you feel like that mandate, that majority that you have is really yours? It's one of the, the smallest majorities in the country. But when I got elected at that time, I'm, I wasn't just elected to represent Conservative voters. I was represented to vote to, to support an entire constituency. You know, I... I, I know from speaking to people and just actually being out and about that actually people voted for many different reasons. You know, some voted for Boris, some voted anti-Corbyn, some voted about anti-Semitism, some voted for Brexit. You know, the elections and polling are very complex. So I, I think just looking at one on, on the back of one story doesn't necessarily give us a, a fuller picture. But I, I think really you know, when the Prime Minister himself wasn't even calling for a by-election, I think think that says all we need to know on that one. And then just finally, you've very recently joined the slightly weird and intense world of Labour politics and people have been joking about your induction into CLP meetings and the NEC and how have you found being being a Labour MP and what are you learning about uh, this party? Well, I, I was more nervous about my first CLP meeting this week than I was going to a potential war zone when I was going to Kiev this week. You know, there, there's a lot I, I need to learn about. The abbreviations, for one, I'm, I'm just getting my head around GC, PLP, CLP, NEC, and so just the terminology would be a start. But I, I think from where we were from last week when uh, you know it, it was very much kind of rabbit in the headlight with the, the majority of the, the not even just the nation the world's media focused on me when i was being recognized in the ukraine and the amsterdam airport realized how far the story had but i, I think really now it's just get, getting engrossed with the local party and i have had my first clp now meeting a few councillors later we'll be speaking to the jewish labor movement which it is it's going to be a journey. I mean, it was a journey to get here and it's, this isn't the destination. This is kind of that first step on, on the journey, which will hopefully be quite a long one as to as to being a, a fully-fledged Labour MP engrossed in not only you know, local politics, local groups and, and ultimately providing on a national scale. Christian Wakeford, thank you very much for joining us on the New Statesman podcast. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and our guest, Christian Wakeford, the new Labour MP for Bury South. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks very much for listening. Please do rate, review, subscribe. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.